Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Jamila King. I'm the race and justice reporter at Mother Jones and host of the award-winning Mother Jones podcast. And I'm so excited to be here moderating this program today with me. I'm sure everyone is really excited because I know I am. I'm pleased to be joined by Marlon Peterson to discuss his new book, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. Peterson spent his career advocating for holistic reform of the criminal justice system. He spent his 20s incarcerated for a crime he was involved in as a teenager. During his time in New York State prisons, he earned he earned his associate's degree in criminal justice with honors, setting himself on a pathway to work with social justice nonprofits and educating others on the truths behind incarceration. His new book, Bird Uncaged, details his childhood growing up in a devout Jehovah's Witness family, Trinidadian immigrant household in Brooklyn, New York. His parents moved to the U.S. to achieve the American dream, but growing up surrounded by physical and sexual trauma made Peterson realize the American dream is just that, a dream. In Bird Uncaged, Peterson exposes the brutality of incarceration and the hollowness of the American dream. He encourages us all to reveal and break from the many cages, both physical and metaphorical, created and maintained by American society. So I want to start off because the world is is so heavy. And one of the things that struck me about your wonderful book um, were the things that you used to survive when you were inside. And, and one of them was Slam Magazine. For us 90s basketball fans, that's a big deal. We can relate. So uh can you tell me just like one move that you feel like you learned either from slam or watching the game that really like you tried to perfect inside? Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy you asked that slam was huge. I mean, I actually have a good collection of the slam magazines that I had inside. I had them sent home. So I have like the ever worth money. I can sell them. Um, but one of the moves that I had, it was Alan Iverson, Alan Iverson move. And I believe he might've had a commercial uh, with it where it was sort of like he would do a crossover one arm and then the ball would go be he would use one arm to bring a ball over one arm and then bring it through his legs and spin and and he would and he would catch the defender going in the other direction so you know it was one of those things in that in that yard that i would try you know and it worked a few times not quite like ai but um you know without question basketball and slam magazines was a huge part of my um my little survival that i had my survival right so I want to talk a little bit about that time that you spent inside. You were 19 years old when you were arrested? 19 years old. I was 12 days from being 20. And so um, at that age, I mean, we, you know, incarceration and the conversation around criminal justice, particularly around young folks, has changed dramatically in even the last 10 years. But at that age, um, what was the conversation like around you regarding prison and folks who were locked up inside? I mean, like you mean like in general in society or like how my community or how? In in general in society, like, you know what I mean? Like what was happening? What was the conversation that you were hearing both in your community, but that, you know, obviously what we hear in the community is, is fed through different well, channels. I can say for sure. One term I did not hear was mass incarceration. Like that, I mean, I, it, it wasn't a term that was floating around as it's flowing around now. Although at that time, you know, in terms of like the state system in New York, it was at its peak, about 70,000 people. So, you know, more people in prison then in New York State than they are now. And the term mass incarceration was not something I'd heard about. Um, and also, I think for me, just sort of thinking about where I was at that point in time, um, I didn't associate incarceration with everybody. I thought it was just, I mean, it was this weird cognitive dissonance where I had people around me that would go to jail, come home, but it would be a day. It would be, or well, he went away for six months. You would know about that one person on the block who went away for six months. And I was like, a, like, wow, he went away for six months. But, you know, in, 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 in the way I saw it back then, I didn't see people going away for years. Like you heard about it on the news, but it never sort of, you know, it never was never digestive. Um, so, you know, I had, I, I was very ignorant to it. I was definitely ignorant to it. My family was certainly ignorant, uh, ignorant to it. So your book is titled um, An Abolitionist Freedom Song. What does abolition mean to you? I love it. Um, you know, it's one of those things that even like right now in this moment, right? Someone asked me a couple of days ago, um, like, what's the abolitionist perspective to uh, or uh, uh, um, answer to a Derek Chauvin? And I, and I said to them, you know, abolitionists 
abolitionism is a politic and it's a journey. It's this constant belief, this constant uh, belief in the creation and action of creating new things, different things. It's also a part, a huge part of it is Dr. You know, Dr. Ruth uh, Wilson Gilmore likes to speak about, is also getting to the root of why these things are happening. I'm saying as an abolitionist, speaking about where I'm at and what does that mean to me as a politic, my initial response to what should have happened to Derek Chauvin, my Marlins initial response is that he should have like, he should have been dead on that street corner. Right. And I'm working myself from that. So abolition is a journey. Like I'm working myself out from that place. Right. That's the instinct to want that retribution, to want that get back. Right. And that's what our punishment system is based on. Abolition is that journey. And I'm constantly on that journey. Right. And, you know, people think that is this sort of st- is this place where you're yeah, abolitionist. Boom. Like you figured it out and you got the complete answers. What we're saying or what I'm saying in my understanding of the way I practice this politic is that, you know, we have this instinct to want we were conditioned to have this instinct to want, get back to want retribution, you know, vengeance right away. But I'm also saying that the abolition is saying that there's possibility beyond that. And we got to strive, we got to search, we got to dig, and we got to create those possibilities. I like what you said about, you know, Derek Chauvin and, and retribution, because I do think that's something that people tend to misunderstand is, you know, abolitionists who, you know, I, I think we have this idea that retribution is justice, um, and I think what you're saying is that that that's not justice. Justice is actually something that we may even can't even imagine at this point, right? Um, what what talk about that a little bit more? Like, what have you seen um, that looks like justice to you? You know, um, I've seen people who I can think about organizations, and I can shout out organizations who are doing tremendous work right now. Um, and uh, one that pops out to me, I'm going to say it's common justice, right? I'm going to use an example, but I'm also sort of like a that's much more like not organizational, institutional, right? And this organization, Common Justice, um, they bring people who have committed uh, violent acts, violent harm, uh, together with people who, have, who they've harmed. And all this is voluntary, right? No one is forced to be in this, not the person who was harmed and not the person who committed it. Um, and they have sort of worked together. They, it's, it's, it's a restorative justice model, right? In terms of trying to restore dignity to the people who were harmed by, with, with, while prioritizing the person who was harmed with the hope that the person who did the, did the act, who accused of doing the act, one admits to doing the act also, but also really gets to the root of why it is she, they, he did the act, right? And because once you understand why you're doing it, it kind of can help you get to the point of like, well, this isn't the thing I don't need to do anymore because this is why I was doing it. Let me address this thing, the root of the thing, right? Because that's what's leading me to do, you know, X, Y, Z, right? And that's one example of like an organizational institutional way and certain seeing like how we can do something different. But the other part of it is that I think, and, I, and this is kind of like for the audience, right? Is that, you know, a way to practice this politic a different way is by practicing on ourselves, Right. So when you watch the news or you go on your skirt on your on your Instagram feed or whatever social media feed you're on and you see an article or something about some egregious harm that happened, this these group of young teens did this thing and this, you know, that happened. Our instinct is usually those people need to go to jail or oh, I need to do so. If I was there, I would have did something to them. Right. For those who think that, you know, <laughs> you know, they're, they're the vigilante. Right. We think about vigilante justice, but we don't think about well, what happened to him, he, they, that would cause them to be in that place in the first place, right? Because that's getting to the root of it, you know? And that's that's personal practice. That's why I say it's personal abolition. Like you got to practice that in your own because it's hard. You know what I mean? It's hard, but I can also say the converse of it is what we have now, which is we have this punishment system that does not focus on the root of anything. It just focuses on that, that the leaf that, you know, that leaf of the tree, but it's not focused on, on the, on the root and what we can do to disrupt and, and create different roots. So, you know, you talk about your own journey and in your book, what I find particularly interesting is you, you don't really talk about prison until maybe like the fifth or sixth chapter, the, the bulk of the beginning of the book is talking about your childhood and masculinity why was it important for you to talk about masculinity and to to sort of show the ways that you were, you know, impacted by what people now call toxic masculinity? Yeah. Well, the first thing is that I didn't know this book was going to become an abolitionist freedom song, right? I told you, this is a journey. So how did it start? Let's go there. How did it start? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know how to, I knew I wanted to write this book about my experiences and I knew that for a, 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 
a significant part of my work has revolved around my carceral experience. And so it's like, I want to talk about that, but I don't want that to be the book. I don't want to write about just a prison book, right? Not because it's not necessary and not because they like, we exhausted the amount of prison books out there, but because it's just like that. I didn't feel that that was, I knew internally that there was more to this than that. And there was more to me than that. There was more to me uh, in my, you know, my, my life at this point than just that physical cave. So I wanted to start early. I wanted to go before. And I figured that I wanted to start with Trinidad. Right. And for me, that was important to me because, I mean, you know, I'm a child. I'm a I'm a first generation American. My entire family is from Trinidad. I've been going to Trinidad since I was in my mother's womb. Right. Back and forth. Right. And I also understood that, you know, the things that I was born into, the community I was born into were based on decisions that my while we ended up in that same name, in that particular neighborhood were partially based on the decisions my parents made. And I wanted to figure out like why they made those decisions to some extent. I wanted to discover, I wanted to go to the root of it. Like I didn't know that's what I was doing, like an abolitionist journey, but that's what I wanted to do. Because also here's the thing. Um, and I think like the chapter dash, which is probably the hardest chapter I wrote, I wrote why like that, the significance of that chapter is that I needed to find out how to deal with harm that happened to me. And I needed to figure out a way to define that in some sort of way that made sense, in a way that didn't make me feel as if it was just senseless, um, and the way in which I wasn't the person that felt as if I was guilty for it. Because, you know, for many people who have survived sexual assault, there's a sense of, like, I did this, I shouldn't have did this, I could have fought them off, I could have, what have you, right? And I wanted to get past that guilt, but I also need to understand, like, what got me, um, like, what, what, what created a person, like, my, what got me to a place where I would be so fearful of being considered. Here's the part where, you know, I was so fearful at that time when I speak about that dash, that, that sexual. So I was so fearful of being considered gay. Right. And, and the thing about that and how terrible that was for me is because like there was this cage, that homophobia was this cage that I was in and it prevented me from getting help. I was 14 at the time. I was a 14-year-old child, right? Baby, a 14-year-old child. I was younger than Micaiah, who was killed yesterday, right? And I didn't want to be seen a certain way because there's this case, like, if people see me like this. And I needed to understand, like, why is that I exist in this world where I was so afraid to talk about trauma, you know? So I wanted to go deep. So I, I didn't know exactly how I was going, but I know I wanted to go from, you know, I know I could not start from, you know, the day I went to jail. I knew that for a right. fact. So let's talk about that chapter a little bit. Um, you know, one, thank you for sharing that. It's brave. And especially we don't see Black men specifically talk about sexual assault. Um, how did you approach writing that chapter? And and who might have, like, helped you sort of come to a place where you're able to write about it? It was a very hard chapter to read. I mean, to write, excuse me. It, it, it was a harder chapter to sort of think about or experience to think about because it's literally the first time I ever went into that type of detail with it, even with myself in a way, like I just, it's parts of it. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't deal with. Um, and I think I'll be honest with you. I think the, the, the person that helped me talk about this honestly was, and he doesn't even know it uh, was my nephew. I speak about him in a book. Right. But um, I have a DJ, podcast, right? DJ, DJ, right. Who also played New York city basketball. Right. Um, but he, um, um, he and I did an interview on a podcast. I have a podcast, Decarcerated. And during the first season, I said, you know, I said, let somebody interview me. He's not in social justice world. He ain't a professor. He, you know, he's a he's a person who's raising his family and, and has a job, right? Um, and doing a good job at it. And so he interviewed me. And it was literally the first time I had spoken to anybody about the, like, spoken about it in detail. In the TED Talk, I mentioned it, and which was the first time I mentioned it. But in this interview on a, on a podcast... It was so, he was sitting right in my living room. We were in my living room doing this. And it was hard for me to talk about it, but it still gave me a little more agency to speak about it because he was somebody who, who I adore so much. So in coming to writing this book, it, you know, I had some practice in a sense with him. And then the other part of it was this finally, Jamila, is that there's a part of me that knows, I can't say for sure. I mean, I can't prove it necessarily, but I know for sure that there are a lot of, boys, particularly black, brown, and boy, uh, boys who experience similar things. And because of various cages, they don't let it out. 
you know, I had a cousin who came to an older cousin of mine, who's like a big homie from around the way, but it's my older cousin and came up to me and don't really, it ain't into the book reading stuff. Right? I got it. Like I come from a certain, you know, they ain't reading books. They aren't listening for us right now. Listen to the mother Jones podcast. You know, I'm not, you know, they're not, but they, you know, they're not right. But he came up to me and he was like, um, you know, little cuz like you told all our stories. The only difference was that you were vulnerable to like say it. Like that's what made me, like, you know, so, and I don't know the details of what he went through. He's a, he's in his fifties. I don't know the details of what he went through. Um, but I know it was like, it was a release. Right. And I think, you know, this book in a, in a sense is like, for what it's worth me on taking and accepting some goodness. It's an opportunity for this book is me shining. It's brilliant. I feel like I'm shining in it, but I'm shining not for the purpose of like some personal self adoration, but like you shined kind of like the old quote from, uh, I forget the person's name right now. Um, but like I'm shining so other people can sort of shine too. And the shining doesn't mean to shine, like to show off, but to, in some sort of like braggadocious way, but it's like to shine in the sense of like you, you're, you are letting light in so you can let, you're letting light into what happened to you. And that's what I'm, that's why I wrote that chapter. And because it was a hard chapter, Jamila, it was a hard, it was a hard chapter to write. And it's, it's not an easy chapter to read, but it's an important one. Um, and I just want to, that made me think about the, how we actually met, which was through these brunches hosted by Darnell Moore uh, called Black Brilliance Brunches. So I feel like we're coming full circle. Um, I also wanted to talk a bit about your family because in, in so many ways, I saw this book as just a love letter to your family and how much you love them for raising you and for sticking by you. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, your parents being from Trinidad and you wanting to investigate the reasons that they came to New York and, and how they settled. Um, what does the American dream mean to you and what did it mean to them when they got here? You know, I don't, I don't, I write about this, but I don't, but I don't recall ever, ever having some sort of word association connected to the, to the term American dream. Like I don't recall having conversations or like I knew the word I'm not read it. I'm sure I saw it on television shows, but it was never something that one appealed to me, but it was also something that just never seemed as if it was with me in mind. Like, I don't think like the, when that ta- term was coined, like I had a picture of Marlon next to it. It just didn't feel like it. So it just, it, it was a distance from it. Um, and I, for me, if I want to say what my dream, if anything was, was that I just wanted to, you know, when I got out of high school, I want to get a job and get a family. And that's about it, right? You know, live a regular life, right? And that would be good in and of itself. Um, I had never thought about, like, for what it's worth, part of the American dream is also buying a house, right? I didn't think about buying. I just wanted to have an apartment. That was like, it. Yeah, let me get an apartment and, you know, and when I think about my parents, you know, my parents grew up in a time where their, their, their access to American, to Americanism for the most part, or American media was radio, right? The radio and occasional, there would be somebody in the community who had a television, right? They grew up in the fifties and sixties, you know, fifties and sixties, forties, fifties, sixties and Trinidad. And so they didn't have all those things. They didn't have, you know, the technology. And I think, you know, my father talks about, it. I remember there's a part where I, uh, in the beginning of the book, where I, I kind of like uh, speak to how, what my father saw in wanting to come to America. And he actually, that, that part of that interview I had my father was actually taken um, in, a, in when I was in prison. Like there's a part of it, I was trying to think about writing a book back then. And I would ask him about these things and I remember writing it down. So that's actually an excerpt from something I wrote back, back way back when. But like for him, the American dream was nothing more than what it than what we was American commercialism. Like that's what America sells. The ability to be just as capitalistic as, you know, anyone else. And that's what it sold. And I think for him, that's what he bought. He's like, I could get out of this country here where, you know, there's a level of, un- where he felt some level of discomfort and go there because it's going to be better. I'm going to give access to all that stuff there. So you write about your father, you write about your father and you write about, um, you know, just recounting his memories of Trinidad. Um, I know that your father has now some, some sort of cognitive memory issues. Um, but you you started sort of the work of, of collecting these interviews while you were still inside. Uh, what else did the sort of reporting process and the writing process for this book look like for you? Um, I mean, I could I can't show you his messiness. You know, we have all these screens here, and then right behind the screen is a bunch of mess, right? <laughs> but I do have like you know, it's right next to me. It's so I have a com- journals and letters and stuff that I had that you know from my time inside. So part of the process initially, what made this book starting this process to write this book so difficult because I had so much written material, right? I had so much written material. I didn't know where to go with it and where the focus should be. So part of it was kind of sifting through all these writings that I had. 
Um, another part of it was speaking to my mother and father and sister. My sister tends to be like the person who knows all, my older sister tends to know all the, all our family history and know the names and places and smells and everything. So kind of conversation with them and also going to Trinidad. I mean, I started, actually started the proposal for this book in Trinidad, um, in the same house that in the same block that my mother grew up on and my father, cause they grew up from the same neighborhood. So in some ways, I think the reason why it's so Trinidad heavy also is that I was there and I was in my parents' community. I was in their neighborhood where people would, hey, where, where father, where your mother, you know what I mean? Who I didn't know, but they apparently knew my parents, right? So it was a part of that. And it was also, lastly, a lot of music. Um, that's why it's a freedom song. I mean, there is, you know, I've had people say it's, it's lyrical. And I didn't know that's, I didn't go into it, say I'm gonna write a lyrical book, but, you know, um, you can, I, I was just sort of discovered that this is a prison habit, <laughs> but I can't write with, unless I have headphones in and music on. Mm -hmm. And not because I need to, and I'll have, I have a playlist. It was not because so much of the lyrics, but I needed to be able to, I need to have a rhythm. Like I need to have a bop. I guess that's the black in me. You know what I mean? I need to, I need to, like I write and I'm literally, I need like, I need to have a bop in my head. Um, and so those are all the ways that this book came to fruition was through old, old writings, conversations with my family, visiting the site of my family's beginnings and music. So this book has been published for eight days now. Um, what's been the reception so far? I mean, I know COVID kind of colors everything. We're all in pandemic mode still and, and not leaving our homes. But what kind of reception have you received? People feel like it, they're connecting to it. I mean, I'm getting DMs and text messages and, and you know, social media posts. But people connecting with, I wanted to write a book where people would impact people's lives. Right? I, I knew that's what I wanted to do, right? And for the better, impact them for the better. And people are coming out of it Interesting enough, as hard as parts of this book is to read, people are coming out of the book from my response as feeling like liberated. And somebody, uh, I can't pull my uh, text message now, but somebody sent me a message last night saying that he that he finished reading it uh, in the midst, uh, yesterday, around the decision of the, uh, the mm -hmm. trial of Derek Chauvin, and it provided like a measure of healing for him, right? And, you know... The reason why, you know, I, I keep using this sort of bring this up in, in these conversations around the book, but like the first chapter is called Hiding and the last chapter is called Un-American and Free, right? And like, I wanted to write a book where people can see where they, we, I need to grapple with the things that are preventing us from being our best selves. And we do that while pushing, extolling, demanding that America does the same thing, right? Um, and so I've had a, I've had good reception. It's my first book, you know. I didn't know I'm nervous still, right? Um, you know, it's been out a couple of days, but like, you know, I've had good reception. I'm thankful that, you know, thus far the intention for the book is coming to fruition. And I felt like the book came out at a really um, important time, to say the least. I mean, we're coming up on the year anniversary of of George Floyd's death. Obviously, yesterday. April 20th um, was when Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all charges for being responsible for his death. Um, how, you know, when you think about calls to defund the police or to abolish the police or to abolish prisons, um, how do you react to those? Go for it. Do it. <laughs> it <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I know I, was, I should just leave it like that. Do it. Um <laughs> I react in a way that I think that is one of the most loving exhortations people can pronounce. People are doing this not because they have decided that the the profession of policing no longer suits them. They're saying it because they want to not die, right? They're saying this out of love of each other, right? Like for what is worth, I, I can't even say this. What I'm about to say, I can't even say. I was about to say that, well, people like you and I, you know, we'd have to worry about police like other folks, but I can't say that. Like, I, I, I can't say that, right? You know what I mean? Even at my age, I'm not doing, I'm not, you know what I mean? But you don't have to be doing anything, obviously, to, you know, be killed. But when I hear, uh, I hear, when I hear defund the police, when I hear abolish police, I hear, one, I hear people bringing up the legacy of people coming before us. One, I hear that. I hear just that people are in tune with the legacy of people before us. The second thing I hear is a strategy. I'm hearing a strategy, right? I'm hearing a defunding the police. I'm hearing what I also, when people, people often start cut off and say defund the police, abolish, and don't attach strategy to that. The same people who are, who are extolling, defund, abolish, are also showing other things to do. 
they are providing resources of what to do. They are showing models. They are, they are, they are in examples. I'm hearing strategy. And lastly, like I said, I'm hearing love. People want to want people to live. That's what people hear. And I, you know, I, I had posed this question to a group of um, law enforcement officials a couple of years ago in Oakland. And, you know, I had asked them, I'm like, when people say this, what are you hearing? Are you hearing that people who are advocating for this, are you hearing that we are saying we want chaos? Is that what you hear when we say defund or abolish? It, why is that you hear chaos? And if that is what you hear, um, why is it that you believe that you are somehow the vanguards against chaos in our communities? When all the evidence shows that you sort of stoke chaos in the communities. I, I, I'm just saying, like, be honest. Just be real. Part of what people are saying is be real. You know what I mean? Part of why yesterday I was somewhat tepid, right, regarding the 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 the, the, the trial of uh, the result, the guilty verdict, is because earlier that the night before, I said to somebody in the interview, I said, no matter what happens in that verdict, we know that this will happen again. We know that police will kill somebody again. Like we know it, and, it and they did. And, I, and I'm sorry because I'm not. First of all, most of us probably know that, and that's the that's it. Abolishing the police, defunding the police is a response to knowing that the police are incapable of not killing us. That's the response. So we want something different. We want to go to the root of why it is these things are happening in communities. We want to support our communities and our young people, obviously, particularly our elderly people, and particularly our women, particularly our men, particularly our trans and queer people. We want to do all of that so that we don't need you there. Why is that so hard to, why is that so hard to take in? So if someone, you know, and I get this question a lot, even in just chats with friends who aren't necessarily activists or whatever, but they're like, what does abolition mean? Where do I go to learn more? Obviously, I'm going to point to your book as a critical source. But what, you know, what's really shaped your thinking on abolition? Where where would you direct people to go if they want to learn more about it? Read anything by Mariam Kaba. Mariam Kaba, um, she got a new book out. Um, Read anything by recently Derricka Purnell. I'm giving you a resource. Derricka Purnell, she got a book coming out in a couple a couple months. Read the the God Angela Davis. Listen to the God Angela Davis. Read, listen to Beth Ritchie. Read, listen to Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, like, there's a lot of resources out there, right? Listen to the uh, the Kambi- the Kambahi Women's Collective. Like, listen to them. Like, li- there they are a plethora of resources out there, right? People say now sarcastically Google it. Well, you could Google it. You could audio book it. You could do a lot of things, right? Um, but there's a lot of th- the term or the idea of police abolition or prison abolition is not a new term. It didn't come up when George Floyd, when Derek Chauvin put his knee on that man's neck. It didn't start then. It didn't start in 2015 or with Black Lives, 2014, excuse me, with Black Lives Matter. It didn't start then. We are all in the legacy of it, right? So just study Black history. And I want to point out that all the people you mentioned are Black women who are writing this work. I Um, mean, (laughs) you see the shirt, right? I stand for Black women, not only because I need you, but because that's what I learned. Right. So let's talk about that. You describe yourself, you know, unapologetically as a feminist. Um, You know, why is it important for you as a Black man doing this work to identify as a feminist? Well, I'm going to say, I don't... I don't, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't know if it's important that me as a black man identifies a feminist in this work, right? I think it's helpful that somebody like me um, identifies or strives to identify as a feminist um, in this work, largely because one, just knowing my history, feminist politics is what has gotten us, feminist politics is what get men out of, is what has gotten people out of prison, Feminist politics is why we have prison abolition. Like, that's, that's why we have it, right? I don't think people understand that. That's why we, we have this, this, you know, it's why Black Lives Matter exists. It's because of feminist politics. I, I think people have this sort of weird kind of uninformed understanding of feminism, particularly Black feminism or queer politics, they, they, you know, and, you know, so they disassociate themselves from it, but they align with all the fruits of the politics. Right. So I, I think it's just because of history. I just know this this is one route that works. And the other thing I want to say why it is I said that, like, I, I sort of shied away from that. It's important because I'm also this. I'm also somebody who comes from a very religious background. Right. I'm no longer religious, but I also and while I appreciate it. Right. I will never denigrate it. It got me to a place where I can articulate myself in the way I do and speak and write and all that sort of jazz and organizing the community. Right. Um, but there is sometimes a religiosity to a politic 
that says like, this is the only politic that works. Right. And I've done enough traveling right around and I've done enough reading to understand that like, um, there are strategies for black liberation that don't always align with my particular politic. And there, and therefore there needs to be a conversation there that had, right. It's not a dismissal of it, but there's a conversation that has had. So I, I'm, I think it's helpful that I am right. Particularly where I come from, right. And where my experiences, I'm not going to say it's important because you know, my voice is important. Obviously I accept that I I'm, I'm owning that, but I also know that like this movement just moving towards black liberation will happen with or without what, regardless of what politic I have. When you were writing this book, um, who were you writing it for? You know, can I say that that question changes as much as uh, the answer to that question is going to be changes as the book is out there. And as the more I think about it, um, initially, so I had Marlo. Marlo is what my you know family called me. Uh, and definitely people call me when I was younger, Marlo. I had Marlo in mind. That's why the book opens up with him and his picture or my picture um, and a letter to him. And then I saw a picture today. Someone sent a picture to me just a couple of hours ago of a boy on a train station. I mean, on a, on a, on a subway train, you know, um, and apparently an MTA employee was about to call the police on him. There's a story behind it. But anyway, he's on the, on the bus, on the train with this book in his hand. So I realized, you know, I wrote a book for people like him. Right. And then I was speaking to a, a colleague who does uh, human justice work in Trinidad. Right. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a lot happening there. And, you know, she was reading a book and she's like, this book could do well for a lot of people here in Trinidad. Right. I mean, I think I wrote a book that's relatable. Right. I think that I think we all got cages. Right. And I think at any point in time, there's somebody who can see what cage that they're in by connecting to this book. I have a cousin who's a teacher, never been to none of this stuff, none of this None of the things, right? None of the things. And was like, I need to look at my dashes, right? And I'm just saying, I think I relate to a lot of people. I mean, I wrote when I, when I was looking, when I was looking at the, the blank screen, I was looking at me. So I wrote it to the younger version. I wanted to free myself from a lot of the things, right? So initially it's me, but I also know that my one story is a lot of other people's stories. Yeah. So we actually have a little bit more time for our conversation. Um, and I wanted to to actually ask you about, so when you were inside, you write about um, someone you knew from the neighborhood, a friend of yours who was a teacher who wound up writing to you one day and kind of changed your life and kind of put you on this path of being an educator. Um, tell me about that process, share that process, because I don't think people really realize how important it is to have connections like that. Yeah, uh, give a shout out to Nadia Lopez. That's my homie. Um, and some of y'all may know I've heard of her. But, you know, when I was um, incarcerated, uh, once again, through my nephew, she uh, reached out to him and asked him, can she write me? Because she was a teacher at the time and she of a middle school and she wanted me to sort of offer some words of wisdom to the kids. And initially when she wrote to me, I was somewhat like, yeah, right. You know, I don't see why they want me to do this. And I was probably four or five years into the sentence. And I was like, why, you know, you should know what I'm here for. Like, why would you want me? You know what I mean? Can you get somebody else? You know, I just didn't feel like I was worthy of it. Anyway, I eventually did it. And, um, and along with it, when I agreed to do it, she eventually also sent me, um, curriculum books of like curriculum design. So I devoured those books and eventually, uh, we turned into a program where I would create curricula that she would put into her character education component of her class. And along with a letter, a general letter to the students and I would write all her students through her and they would all write me back through her. And I, you know, that went on for about a year or two. Um, and you know, I'd be writing up to 50 letters at a time, right. Responses. And that, that completely changed my trajectory. Right. I mean, I, I, in terms of what I felt I could do, right. I felt not much, not dissimilar from what I wanted to do before I went to jail. So I wanted to come home, get a family, you know, get a job and have a family. Right. And, I figured I'd figure that out somehow. I was, you know, my brother's an electrician. I can learn a little bit of electrical trade in the jail I was in. They had a program, electrical trade program. It wasn't all that good, but they had something. I figured I'll figure that out, you know, but that changed my complete trajectory for everything. I mean, the mere fact that, um, I mean, if I, I started interviewing people in prison, right. And writing stories about them and then running classes inside and like that, Kids change, young people, that woman and those young people changed me. That was intervention, right? Because in fact, and I'll close over this, you asked me earlier, how did I get to the point where I was comfortable writing about that dash? And 
the first time I became comfortable with even like, maybe I can speak about this. It, didn't, it was inside. And it was through those letters from those young people. They didn't tell me about sexual assault, but they were, they told me about so many other things that I felt like, oh, wow, they, they're okay talking about this. And they don't even know me. And it made, and they were around the age that I was when I was sexually assaulted. So it gave me a sense of like liberation too. Like they gave me some, they gave me energy. And to the point where years later when I was released, obviously, you know, I'm able to talk about a lot of sensitive things. Yeah. And you actually worked at a program inside the prison, helping folks, you know, train folks to sort of what to expect when, you know, you go home. Um, when you went home, what was that? What was that first day like that first night? You know, I remember we released and we went to an IHOP. I think it was an IHOP. <laughs> and, you know, I, I thought I was going to be nervous being around people, but I wasn't nervous around folks. But when I... um my, my sister, nephew, and brother came to pick me up in a car and they drove me home back to Brooklyn from upstate New York. And um, a couple of things. The first thing I noticed when I got around my way was that there were so many of the same people I grew up with hanging out, hanging, hanging around, right? Still around the way. Just older, the bellies, like pot bellies now, the same guys, you know, the sneakers not as fresh as it used to be. But like, I noticed that. The next thing I noticed in my neighborhood was that coming out of my building in Crown Heights, there's a lot of white people in my neighborhood. I was like, why, why are they coming out of my building? Like that, that was the next thing. And the next thing that I stood out to me when I got home was my father. Um, Cause at the time I came home, my mother was in Trinidad and um, my father opened up the door. And his first words to me was that I can sleep now. And you know, it, it, you know, I, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, I go there with it, but like, you know, it, I could say coming home was somewhat, anticlimactic, right? There wasn't a big party. I didn't, you know, do all the things. The only thing I wanted when I came home, I told him was like, I just want a computer. I want a laptop. I, I ain't never used one before. So I want to see what one is. And I want to use it. Um, and I went to sleep that night. I think, I think a couple of days after I felt sad because there were people who were still there. Like I was like, dang, I'm here. And you know, there's that sort of like survivor's guilt, you know? Um, and after that, I should say, Jamila, that, you know, for the most part, I had, you know, through those years of preparing other people to come home, like I had a game plan for when I came home and thankfully, you know, you know, I had a mattress. My, my parents provided me a room and a mattress and that's all I needed. They didn't force me to pay bills right away. And it gave me the opportunity to volunteer and run holler the youth program. I, you know, write about in a book and, you know, volunteer and do organizing stuff. Um, so I'm thankful that, you know, my release from prison was somewhat transitionless, but it was a lot of like deep family love that got me out. Yeah. And I think one thing that's important to mention is you spent a decade of your life that your 20s, you spent all of basically all of your 20s inside. Um, and there's one part of the book that I kind of cracked up at, which was, you know, instead of going to the club, you just had your your radio in the prison and you just put on your headphones and you would take, you know, <laughs> like Lauren Hill out on a date on a Saturday night and just listen to Lauren Hill. Um, what other things helped you survive? You survive? Writing to myself. Um, those, obviously basketball, those, those, uh, those party nights in my cell by myself, the, the, the last couple of years, I, you know, I spent the, most of my time not playing basketball. I spent most of my time trying to figure out new curriculum and ways to get information to the guys. I was in a position where I could get information and my thing is like, if I can get information, I'm gonna get it to the population. Right. Um, and that, that, I like that. I love that. Like people, I, the program that I worked for in the jail was called Transitional Services. And I always remember this one time I was playing in a basketball tournament um, in the jail. And one of the dudes says, yo, Transitional Services got the ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, I like being in a position to get people information. That, that was my thing. And, I, and I, that, that got me through. That, like, I would not want to not miss an opportunity to get people information. So we have the first audience question, um, which is, what was the first meal you ate after your release and what it did, what did it mean to you? French toast at IHOP. Um, I don't know. It felt like I, I could eat with a fork and knife that um, I didn't have to give back at, at the end of the meal. Cause in jail, after you eat, you got to give the, the the utensils back. It felt different. Like I have this, I don't have to give it back. Um, I think the, like I hadn't eaten French toast in, over a decade, right? So it was one of the first things in my mind. I wanted to wanted to get that. I wanted to experience that. Um, I don't know. For me, I don't know. I, I looked at it differently, and I was happy, but it was also I, I was. I, and this is a part of my problem, and I, I I struggle with staying in the present. 
And for me, I was like, I remember that, but I also was like, I can't wait to like do the next, I need to like, I got to figure out how I'm getting my ID. I got to go to parole. So I was like already like, I need to do the thing. I need to get myself together. Um, so I wasn't in the present enough, I think, when I first came home. I, and I don't regret that necessarily, to be honest with you. I don't, I, you know, um, you know, it is what it is, as that cliche term goes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the best way to answer that question. It was French toast at IHOP somewhere upstate New York, and it tasted hella good. <laughs> Can you share any rehabilitative solutions to conventional punishment that address both the immediate crime and address the root cause of the crime that you alluded to earlier? Mm-hmm. Powerful question. Powerful question. I mean, I think um, I addressed a little bit of it in when in the story I gave with me and the students, right? Now, and the reason why, and I might be a little odd because you're like, well, um, that's there's no punishment included in that. And I'm absolutely saying that that's part of what I'm saying, right? Punishment was included in that. Um, um, but there was an intervention that started from what I could do. It was a, it was a, it was a strength model. If I was a social worker, I would say it was a strength based model of, of what quote unquote rehabilitation was. The person, she didn't reach into the jail to say, we, um, to, to just, to, just to tell me about what's wrong with me or how bad it is. She looked in the jail and saw he could help me. He has something to offer. And I can't tell you how, I mean, I got to tell you the sort of like how powerful that is because that, turned into me obviously uh, helping young folks uh, uh, from inside. One of those young people I know for a fact, we you know, spoke to the other day, she's a PhD graduate, right? She has a doctorate. But but also that turned into another program, which is how our lives went all together. Where I got other men who were inside a part of the same thing. And now that program now, you know, one of the people was featured on Ava, uh, Ava DuVernay's The 13th documentary. What I'm saying is that like, and they were all, they were all convicted of violent offenses too all the people that were part of this. What I'm saying to you is that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a transfixing of the mind of what it is people in who are incarcerated, what they're capable of doing. You know, they're capable of doing more than the worst thing that they did. Right. Brian Stevens says we shouldn't be defined by the worst thing, but they're also capable of doing more than the worst thing they've ever done. And you have to see that strength-based model. Right. I don't know if that addresses necessarily well, if this person is a threat, to commit more harm in the in the immediacy of the moment, that's a different conversation that we should have. But oftentimes, let me say this, not, you know, I'm from a certain place, I've been a certain place, I've worked with people in a certain community. And I also know that the majority of people who we consider violent and harmful and, and all the things aren't ready to pounce on another person every day. There's a reason. And that's why the abolitionist part comes to part of it. Even as people who want to do rehabilitative work, you got to get to the root. Another question is, uh, what crime were you convicted of? What role did racism play in your experience of the criminal justice system even before your arrest? Um, I was arrested for the crime we were convicted of was a double homicide. Uh, four people in total were shot. I was a, I was a uh, lookout. In, in the offense. Um, I didn't have a weapon. I wasn't even in the, the, the location where the crime happened, but I was, a, I went. Um, so, um, so that's, that's the offense that I went to prison for. Um, and in terms of what role did racism play in it? I speak about this in the book, right? There wasn't a, um, I think when we think about racism, we know that some people tend to think about racism in these overt terms. Like when did somebody call you a nigger or when did somebody do those sort of things? Right. And I mean, that happens. That's, uh, that wasn't my experience here as growing up in New York. Nobody ever called me that. Right. At least not to my face. Um, but I also speak about ways in which racist racism played a role in our lives growing up. Right. And I speak about us being, I say us, I'm talking about my nephew again, who apparently is a big theme in this talk with me. And you, um, you know, we were stopping frisk when he was, uh, seven or eight, and I was about 15 or 16, we would stop and frisk coming off a bus from steel pad practice with t-shirts and a short pants on, on our block, by four white police officers in an unmarked car. So you're asking what role did it play? It didn't, roll, it didn't play a role in the day that I got arrested, which is why I didn't start with the day of my arrest. I started this book way before that, because I needed people to understand that, you know, in a line of many other writers, particularly black writers, black rappers, even that like this sort of, you know, racism doesn't require you to call me a nigga or, or, you know, those sort of things. It's, it's the system that sort of allows it to live. 
Um, this next question is for both of us. Uh, are you hopeful about the progress we've made in the last year? And what's one thing you wish people, especially white people, would understand about criminal justice reform? Um, I'll go first. My answer is pretty simple. Um, I, I like, I really appreciate, Marlon, what you said about um, a journey. You know, like we're all on our journeys around thinking about punishment. I think thinking about shame too. I think we don't talk enough about shame. And it's my experience that um, everybody feels shame, including the person who's done the worst thing you can imagine. And that person still deserves an opportunity to live and, and make amends and, and do better. Um, but what about you? What has the last year taught you? And what's one thing you think you wish white people would understand about criminal justice reform? <laughs> You know, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm conscious, I'm tired of wishing what white people would do, but I will say this, right? Um, do I think there's progress? Progress is always relative. And for me, progress lays in the fact that, I'm, you know, writing a piece now, um, I think about George Floyd's daughter on top of Stephen Jackson's neck. Um, and she's saying, my daddy changed the world. This little black girl is growing up with, the, with two things. She's growing up knowing that the police killed her father and she's going to grow up without her daddy. And she's also grown, hopefully grown up with the image, at least according to that video, that her father transformed the planet. And to me, there's, there's hope in that. There's hope in that. I'm, I'm 40. I've been through a lot. I've seen a lot of police killings. I'm, I'm a little bit more jaded, I could be honest. But that's what I want to say. I see that hope in that little girl saying that my daddy changed the world because I can push her to do some other things. But in terms of white people, man, I mean, you got to understand that racism is part of your instinct. Right. It's not it's not it's not, you know, it's part of it's part of your fabric. You know, I'm writing a piece I'm writing right now. Here's a startling sort of thing that just yesterday um, <clears throat> I went to a bookstore in Manhattan, a, a Barnes and Nobles to go in there, you know, look for my book. You know, we got a book out there. You want to see it. I go in there I find it. And I'm speaking to the store manager. I'm signing some copies. I, you know, I'm having her reposition it to, you know, a more prominent space where it says black voices. And I, while this woman who is working as a staff member, she has an apron, like I guess a Barnes and Noble type apron on where you can see a name tag. And I'm standing next to her, watching her put my book together, situated, and a white lady, older white lady comes to me, taps me on my shoulder and, and uh, with a list, with a white piece of paper with a list of books and asks me, can you tell me where to find these books? And my book was right in front of her. That white lady can, could not see me as anything other than somebody who would be there to serve her. She can even see me as a customer, far less an author. I could give you the benefit of doubt and say, you know, you don't walk into authors in the Barnes and Nobles every day, but you can even see me as a customer, right? So the reason I'm bringing that up, because she could have been a good white woman, you know, whatever that is, right? She could have been a good white woman. She was older. She was also elderly in her 70s, I, I'm assuming, which is my mother's age, so I didn't disrespect her in any way, um, even though I felt disrespected, but it was her, even if she's a good, she could have been out there with Black Lives Matter and doing all the things. Her instinct, her instinct was not to see me as a full Black person. So it's in your DNA. What you need to learn, you got to learn that's part of your DNA that you need to constantly, constantly chip away. Like it's not, you don't read this book or you don't read anybody's book and say, you got it. I'm, no, I'm not anti-racist. I read Ibram Kennedy. I'm anti-racist. Nah, that should take every day. The next question is, say in 70, 80, 90, or 100 years from now, society no longer has mass incarceration um, or racialized prisons, what would you want that future society to remember about this period in history right now? Wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> that we resisted, that we always resisted, that we were always creating in the middle of that resistance. You know, I think about in a way, you know, I think about you think about shadow slavery or during the slave trade. And, you know, there's these, you know, if you if you only get a public school education, you would sort of think that, you know, they just got us, got on a ship, came here, we worked the slave, worked the plantations, we waited till Lincoln came in 1863, and then we we got out. Black people were always resisting. We were always creating things. And I, I think part of that wrong narrative. Um, places us in a way in which we always need somebody to help us, right? And I want to say that if people look back in generations forward, that's why I say people write, write your books, write your write your books, do your podcast, do whatever, you, like document your document your resistance, document your creativity, um, because if you don't, you know, it, people people can believe that we didn't do that we weren't fighting for for ourselves, but but also that we weren't fighting for that future. And then uh, I think this is a fitting last question from the audience. Um, why do you think 
media makes police violence against black women slash black trans women who are black women invisible, but is willing to selectively nationalize police violence against black men. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, for one, we also understand we live in a, you know, I use the term, but I, I, I don't like using it because it sounds cliche. We live in a patriarchal society, right? And that is something that's endemic to us, me, on this call. That's why I say I'm striving to be a feminist, right? I got to work at chipping off patriarchy every day. I didn't, like, I didn't read Orgy Law and they're like, I'm good now. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and so why people, why I think the media pays more attention to it, um, one is that like that embedded patriarchy is a part of it. I think it's about, that's one part of it. Um, and I think that there's also a belief, there's an ignorance to the way black women, women black, brown women, Latinx, indigenous women, the way they suffer. There's an ignorance to it. There's an ignorance to the, to the fact that they, they are all suffering when this stuff happens. And they are also being victimized, I think, because the quantities are different, right? So, you know, there's more black men going to jail than they are, you know, any, you know, black women going to jail or what have you, right? Or black men, more black men being shot by the police than they are black women shot by the police. So we look at those those quantities and we think, well, let's just focus on that because that's, we just focus on that, that highlights everybody else, right? And it sounds like some Reaganism, you know, like trickle down economics and trickle down like a social justice um, or trickle down media. And I think those are all the reasons why that happens. But I, you know, I also, um, I also just don't think like we, as particularly as men, understand how we contribute to it enough. Even the good men, <laughs> even the good, I don't think we realize how much we contribute to it, um, and in the space we take up. And we sometimes are so caught up in the in the trauma that we have, which is real, and our inability oftentimes as men to express that trauma in a healthy way. So that when it does, when somebody does speak about the trauma that a black man has gone through, or like what I've gone through, or whatever, we tend to lionize it. Like, oh my God, yeah, we did it, and it was just such a low bar, you know. Um, and we're good at reaching low bars. Yes, indeed. Well, Marlon, thank you so much um, for your book and for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, Marlon Peterson is the author of the new book, Bird Uncaged: An Abolitionist's Freedom Song. Uh, we'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live and our bookseller for this program, the wonderful, magnif magnificent and historic Marcus Books in Oakland. Um, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Jamila King. Thank you and stay safe and healthy. Have a good night, everybody. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.